You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. If you want to support the podcast and to help this podcast continue to grow and thrive and exist, go over to the Patreon. It's linked in the show notes below. I got a lot of really cool stuff planned for the Patreon to end 2023 and to begin 2024. So go on over. Stay a while. I appreciate it. Henrietta Miller was pregnant with her third child. It was 1919. And while one version of America was entering the roaring 20s, she and her husband, Connery, were keeping the farm afloat in Waco, Texas, while steering clear of the re-emerging KKK. Their child was about to enter a world with Jim Crow laws and a lifetime of people telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing. Who would this baby grow up to be? She was certain about one thing. She was having a little girl. The midwife assured her this would be the case. There were no ultrasounds back then, so experience and educated guesses were the next best things. They say if your hair is dry and your belly sits high, then you're having a baby girl. Maybe these were some of the predicting factors that led both of them to believe they knew the sex of the baby. And so the name she chose was Doris. This is the story of Doris Miller. I'm Andre, and this is is the Redacted History Podcast. October 17th, 1919. Henrietta pushed and prayed with all her might for a successful delivery, but she would be in for a surprise. Baby Doris was in fact not a little girl, but another baby boy. This was completely unexpected, especially for Henrietta and the midwife. She already had two boys, but, but that did not stop her from holding out hope at the time. She would even go on to have a fourth baby boy after Doris. But she had grown fond of the name Doris, so she decided to stick with it despite any protests from the family. For most of my listeners, I would venture to guess that the name Doris isn't the first one that comes to mind when you think of a little boy. Even in 2023, as we're continuing to challenge ideas surrounding gender norms and identity. It's not hard to understand why, in 1919, it may have been considered a little peculiar. But Doris, later known as Dory to some, would only grow up and continue to deliver the unexpected. In fact, the name Doris Miller would become synonymous with bravery, heroism, and the extraordinary. Doris grew up working the land with his family. A full harvest was the key to the family's survival, so it was all hands on deck. This wasn't just any family farm. Doris's parents were sharecroppers. 
it's important that we make that distinction. Although sharecropping was common at the time, it was a system that made land ownership and economic mobility extremely difficult. So what exactly is a sharecropper? Some of you may remember learning a bit about this profession in school, but for those of us who may have dozed off a little bit or weren't taught it at all, let me fill you in. The concept of sharecropping emerged after slavery ended, or ended. Those who were formerly enslaved or unlucky enough to be poor farmers had all of the skills to work their own land. The only problem was if you were a newly freed black person or a poor white person just trying to get by, the wealthy whites were slow to offer land redistribution or assistance. 40 acres and a mule and reparations wasn't coming to fruition and poor farmers were on their own. These two demographics found themselves at the mercy of those with the money. They would continue to farm as they had been, but not as owners and not as enslaved people, technically, but as sharecroppers. Think of the owners of the land as a landlord. They rent out the land, seeds, supplies, and whatever else was necessary to grow the crops. And in exchange, the tenants do all the work to produce an abundant harvest. They then had to sell the harvest back to their landlords and only their landlords. Taking a few crops to sell on the side was illegal. The sharecroppers were then allowed to keep whatever food or profits the landlord felt was reasonable. You didn't exactly get rich being a sharecropper. If you were lucky, you made just enough to get by. And God forbid your harvest be a little low one year. You could find yourself in debt and therefore tied to the land until the debt was paid off. And please believe these landlords were constantly moving the goalpost. Needless to say, Doris's parents weren't exactly rolling in money. So it was here on this farm where he was most needed. It was this farm that would pull him away from his formal education. In high school, Doris played on the football team, fullback, and he was well-liked. We will never know where his life may have gone had he had the option to commit to his education. Unable to balance work and school at the same time, he left school to continue to work on the family farm full-time. His family needed him. He had a strong sense of duty to his family. A duty so strong that he enlisted in the Navy to help earn even more money. But please remember, there was more than one way to be rich. What they lacked in money, they made up for in character. Henrietta and Connery were God-fearing, church-going folks. The Millers gave their children love, strength, tenacity, and integrity. And Doris was strong in every sense of the word. Standing at six foot three, over 200 pounds, when he enlisted at 19, the Navy was more than happy to accept him. Many African Americans at that time were willing to serve, but more often than not, they were denied the opportunity. Some branches were turning away black people altogether. Others, like the Navy, were only allowing black soldiers in a limited and segregated capacity. And I mean segregated, as in no eating, sleeping, training, or even worshiping together. As of 1940, only about 10,000 black people were in the service altogether. This, of course, was not equitable at all. In the Navy, soldiers who were black could only really work as cooks or messmen. There were no white messmen. This position was sort of reserved out of the necessity to have people of color on the force, but not have them directly involved. A messman's main duty were things like laundry, taking care of the needs of an officer, like making his bed, preparing his meals, shining shoes, that sort of thing. 
This position was vital to day-to-day -day operations of the ship. However, it did not put anyone black on the front lines. There's absolutely nothing wrong with holding this position. In fact, it still exists today, but when you factor in the racial element, it shines a different light on the situation. Even outside of the military, black people were too often limited to positions of servitude without giving them an opportunity to showcase any other abilities. As a mess man, Doris received completely different training. They were not given any sort of preparation to actually fight anyone. Their duties were to be as followed. Messmen were not allowed to operate guns or other artillery. Historians claim this was for a few possible reasons. The first being the belief that black people were intellectually inferior and probably couldn't handle that kind of training anyway. At this time, the widely held belief steeped in racism and eugenics was that black people were just simply born stupid, unable to handle complex tasks or responsibilities. And it was white people's jobs not to put on us more than they could handle. This ties back to the stereotype of the doting, happy slave who only lived to serve. The second and possibly more unpopular opinion was that the idea of an armed man of color, particularly a black man, made their white counterparts uncomfortable, especially for, if you can imagine, anyone on the ship who may have had certain prejudice against black people and any other people of color. Wild thought, right? And better yet, if this was the attitude, what war did the U.S. require Doris's duties for exactly? The U.S. had not yet entered World War II. The war began September 1st, 1939, and so far the U.S. chose to stay out of it. Regardless of the ethical implications of the situation, the country simply did not think it was in their best interest to be directly involved in the fight. Between World War I, the Great Depression, a massive drought, a pandemic, and the desire to protect an ever-growing country, the U.S. had its hands full. It may have also been a little hypocritical to join the fight against fascism when there's strange fruit hanging in your own backyard. And why was the world at war again? The stage was set for World War II when Germany was left in terrible shape following the First World War. Resources were scarce, and during this time of economic downturn, one man emerged, claiming to have the solution for Germany's problems. And unless you've been living under a rock, we all know that man to be Adolf Hitler. More importantly, we know the atrocities he was directly responsible for, such as the Holocaust. But he did not act alone. The dictator's rise to power was pacified, enabled, and in some countries encouraged. And by the time the quest for white supremacy and human rights atrocities had grown out of control, more than 50 countries had become involved in World War II. Some siding with Germany, such as Italy and Japan, and others on the right side of history. Some countries were directly in the throes of battle and others provided supplies and machinery to their respective sides. When the war finally ended, upwards of 85 million people worldwide had lost their lives as a result, over 6 million of which were Jewish. But let's not go down that very long tangent that is World War II. This episode isn't about World War II. It's about Doris. Doris began his training for his position as mess attendant third class in Virginia, miles away from home. He began his service, and in what downtime he did have, he managed to become the heavyweight boxing champion aboard the USS West Virginia. Surprising to no one. That same ship would end up in Pearl Harbor. The reason why was a little unclear at first. Again, the U.S. had not officially entered the war, nor had any other country declared war on them. Yet. The United States moved ships into Pearl Harbor because of Japan. At this time, everyone had some sort of territory in the West, and Japan wanted a piece of the pie. 
They had dreams of building an empire, but their attempts at acquiring more rubbed the U.S. the wrong way. So the United States set up in Hawaii, conveniently located in the Pacific as a way to intimidate Japan and discourage them from expanding any further. This was the last straw in addition to the sanctions the U.S. had already imposed on Japan. There were whispers from intercepted messages that the Japanese military might try to attack, but because there was no official declaration of the war, the rumors were dismissed. If anything, it was assumed that Japan would attack one of the other colonies in the Pacific. This assumption, of course, would be wrong. So on that fateful day at Pearl Harbor, the Navy was caught completely and totally off guard, and things would take a horrific turn. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming up next, Japan strikes first, forcing Doris to make a decision. December 7th, 1941, was just like any other morning aboard the ships. Doris woke up bright and early to start his day. Many of the other men on the ship did the same, and some were enjoying some well-deserved rest. The sun was shining and the view from the ship of the island's coast was magnificent. Doris's first task of the day was breakfast, when bellies were full and the kitchen was cleaned. Everyone else carried out their duties as usual. For Doris, the next step was the laundry room. At this point, the routine was well established. The USS West Virginia had been stationed there for months without any actual activity, just training and practice drills. I imagine there was a small amount of ease on the vessel. But in the same waters, unbeknownst to them, 131 dive bombers, 103 level bombers, 79 fighters, 49 torpedo planes, 35 submarines, 11 destroyers, 9 oilers, 2 heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, two battleships, were all making their way to Pearl Harbor. The U.S. Navy soldiers looked in the skies with disbelief, but by that time, it was already too late. Bombs began to fall. Dozens of planes had obstructed the views of the clouds. Bullets and bombs rained down on them. The alarm sounded. Air raid, Pearl Harbor, this is not a drill. Explosions began to echo through the air. In a matter of minutes, humongous plumes of dense black smoke billowed up into the sky. Everyone scrambled to their stations, Doris included. Some men were even still in their nightclothes, having prepared for bed after an overnight shift. Those already victimized by the attack cried out in anguish. It was complete chaos. Ships rocked and swayed from the force of the explosions. If your ears weren't ringing, then your eyes were watering and your chest burned from the smoke. Human flesh scorched by the flames that were swallowing up vessels and cut by falling shrapnel. The cool waters that were blue and serene just moments ago were ablaze. Oil from the ships had settled on top of the ocean and created islands of fire. Screams for help went out to anyone who was listening. And Doris was listening. When he went to his post at an anti-aircraft battery magazine, he found it completely destroyed. Rather than calling it quits and jumping ship right then and there, he went back up to the decks amongst the confusion. 
Although he may have been merely a mess man, he sprang into action with the might and vigor of someone who had been fighting their entire life, because he had been. He began to use his strength to get others to safety. While doing so, he was informed that Captain Mervyn S. Bennion was badly injured. He was instructed to go to him. When Doris found the captain, he was in dire condition. A piece of shrapnel had punctured him deeply in the abdomen and he was bleeding out. Doris helped him get onto a cot and moved him into a relatively safer location where he could receive medical attention, but unfortunately the captain would die at the scene. Bullets, bombs, and debris did not let up. It was at this moment that Doris, in a single untrained heroic act, took action. Doris noticed an unmanned machine gun nearby. He was only supposed to reload it, but instead, he took hold of the weapon and fired as many shots as the artillery would allow. He just kept shooting until he couldn't shoot anymore, round after round after round. He was certain that he hit at least one of the Japanese planes, but some say he took down as many as five. The formally agreed upon number today is two. When the ammunition ran out, the fighting didn't stop. Doris continued to help people get off the boat using ropes and helped men out of the flame-infested waters. It is said he even dove in and swam under the flames while simultaneously escaping bullets that were aimed in their directions. He saved several lives that day, although the exact number is unknown. The total count for the USS West Virginia was 130 killed and 52 wounded. The attack lasted over an hour. Doris was one of the very last people to leave the USS West Virginia in its very final moments before the ship was completely consumed by the flames and the sea. 2,403 people lost their lives that day at Pearl Harbor, and 19 ships were impacted by the surprise attack. The attack on Pearl Harbor would be all the reason Americans needed to get behind going to war, and because Japan was allied with Germany and the other Axis powers, the United States would enter World War II. When the dust settled from the attack, everyone started sharing their stories and experiences. The memory of Doris's actions persevered. Newspapers reported a story about an unknown Negro messman and his bravery at Pearl Harbor. Unknown? You heard that correctly. This recognition turned Doris into the talk of the nation, even though no one knew his name. Not just because he was brave, there were many brave men that day who stepped up to perform their duty, but Doris had gone above and beyond the call of duty, and he had done so without any training. Doris had also unintentionally broken the color barrier, which begged the question, were black people really unable to handle higher positions in the military, or was this simply a case of racism? Many people were beginning to suspect the latter, even though the black community knew it all along. In January 1942, the Navy General Board met to discuss if they could expand the roles of black men and what that would look like. Meanwhile, the Pittsburgh Courier was on the hunt to find the name of this mystery man. The black-owned newspaper would be successful and was the first to mention him by name. They thought it was important to give him his proper recognition, and they were right. The newspaper team spent $7,000 to figure out who Doris was and to get his name out there. That's about $150,000 today. Doris was about to become a symbol. March 12, 1942, an article in the Pittsburgh Courier printed a headline reading, Messman Hero, Identified. Courier's untiring efforts produce his name of Pearl Harbor hero. Doris's headshot is pictured. He's in his Navy uniform, no hat, and his natural hair cut short. He isn't smiling, but instead has a look of stoicism. Pictured in the article with him is a woman by the name of Moselle Alexander. He was said to have been seeing her at the time. The headline under the pictures read, Mess Attendant Turned Gun on Japanese. 
readers of the newspaper, several black organizations, including the NAACP, the black community, and those willing to appreciate his efforts wanted Doris to be awarded the Medal of Honor. They petitioned the president directly, consistently, and relentlessly, demanding that Doris be allowed to serve in a higher position and receive recognition for the lives he saved that day. But for black soldiers, the lack of recognition or access was a part of a bigger conversation. As a result, the black community launched the Double V campaign. Double V represents victory from fascism and victory from racism. People threw their hands up to display a double V symbol, almost representing two peace signs being thrown up in solidarity. There was even a plan to march on Washington for an equal treatment of black soldiers led by A. Philip Randolph. The idea for this march was born out of the conversation being had after Pearl Harbor, but the march never actually had to happen. The threat of it was enough, and in 1944, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president at the time, signed Executive Order 8802, which prohibited discrimination in defense industries or government. A few years prior, in 1942, FDR also did the right thing and approved for Doris to get the Navy Cross. Not the same as the Medal of Honor, but a high honor nonetheless. Admiral Chester W. Nimitz presented Doris with the Navy Cross on May 27, 1942. Doris stood proud. He would be the first African-American to receive such an honor. Doris became sort of a household name after that, a celebrity, which was very contrary to his humble personality. He wasn't in it for notoriety. He just did what he thought was right. Posters with his image and the slogan above and beyond the call of duty were printed and plastered everywhere. He was the first black American to be allowed on speaking tours with the military, and he became the poster child for black Navy recruitment. At this time, the Navy was still one of the few branches that allowed black Americans to serve, even if it was in a limited capacity, and they were happy to use Doris as a tool for recruitment. It was the fine line between representation and tokenism, but it worked. The attack on Pearl Harbor and Doris's efforts led to an increase in black Americans' recruitment into the Navy, so much so that in 1944, the Navy ship, the USS Mason, would be the first ship with a majority black crew. Despite being awarded the Navy Cross, Doris would continue on as a mess attendant with a promotion to mess attendant first class and later cook third class. In the spring of 1943, he would report to the USS Liscombe Bay back in the Pacific. Only this time, he would not be able to save himself from the ship's demise. November 24, 1943, the USS Liscombe Bay was hit with a torpedo and sank within less time than it would take to listen to this episode. Of the 900 men aboard, only 272 survived. I don't doubt that Doris died trying to save as many men as possible, just like he did a few years prior. He would not be declared officially dead until a year later, and with no body ever recovered, his family carried on with the service for him. He was 24 when the ship went down. His legacy is decorated with the Navy Cross, the American Defense Service Medal, Fleet Clasp, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, the Good Conduct Medal, Combat Action Ribbon, the World War II Victory Medal, and the Purple Heart Medal that was awarded to him posthumously. And to top it all off, the next aircraft carrier will be named Miller after Doris Miller, first black name to appear on a ship. And in recent years, majority of the aircrafts have been named after politicians, particularly presidents. So a ship named after Doris Miller will be recognized alongside former presidents such as Lincoln and George Washington. Nationally, Doris was a legend, and today his legacy lives on. His mother called him a hero. I like to call him a badass. And what did Doris have to say about his actions? It wasn't hard. I just pulled the trigger. 
and she worked fine. Until next time. This episode was written and researched by Jordan Howard, edited and narrated by Andre White. If you like the Redacted History Podcast, consider leaving a rating and review. And more importantly, subscribe and follow the podcast. The subscriptions are the numbers that matter the most. I appreciate all of the support. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.